This morning's message comes from the book of Hebrews as we've been uh, going through chapter 10, beginning at verse 26. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 26. The passage that we're going to look at this morning here, in my opinion, is one of the most ignored and uh, avoided passages in all the Bible. It has been ignored and avoided by pastors who don't want to touch it, teach on it. Um, and it's avoided and, and ignored by many Christians for a couple of reasons. One, if you read this passage, it troubles people. Two, it makes people uncomfortable. And three, what this passage teaches may actually clash, clash with some of our previous held beliefs up to this point in our life. And so most people, when they, if they're reading through the Bible and they come to this, they just sort of like read through it and keep on going. They don't really spend a lot of time considering it or whatever because it's just, as I said, it's just a troubling passage that makes even Christians uncomfortable. Well, my position is this. If God has placed it in the Bible, then we need to deal with it. And I will tell you that here at this church, the Oasis, we will never avoid or ignore passages of Scripture just because they trouble us, just because they make us uncomfortable, and just because they may clash with our previous held beliefs. We're going to deal with things head on because we believe that that's what we as the people of God are to do. If God put it here, He put it here for a reason. And God doesn't just waste words. He's not just, well, I'm just going to throw that in and, you know, ignore it if you want to. No. There's a big reason why God has these verses and passages in the scriptures. Now, for many who've over the years wrestled with this passage of scripture, they've come to two, what I believe are wrong conclusions about what this passage is teaching. There are many that believe that this passage is talking to Christians, but it's basically teaching that a Christian can lose their salvation. I do not believe that that's what this passage or any other passage in the Bible teaches. So then there are those that say, well, this passage then has to be talking to people that aren't children of God. They aren't believers. And it's talking about their judgment that's going to come upon them someday. And I don't believe that that's at all what this is talking about either, because clearly we have seen throughout this letter to the Hebrews that he's clearly writing to his brothers and sisters in Christ. This is not talking to unbelievers. These are clearly talking to believers in Jesus Christ. So if I don't believe that a Christian can lose their salvation then what are these verses referring to? With all of that said, one more thing. Throughout the letter of Hebrews, the author has been encouraging his readers that even though they are dealing with hard things in following Christ, don't give up, don't give in, don't quit. Keep on following Jesus Christ. 
And he's given them great incentives and motivations and inspiration along the way for why they should hang in there and keep following Christ even though it's difficult. Today, when he comes to this passage, here's what he's doing. He's saying for for them and for all of us that we must not become too short-sighted in our walk with God and in our living and our life. That we must always look past the immediate things that we're dealing with and maybe even struggling with. And we've got to look past that out into eternity at times to truly stay on track and be motivated and inspired to keep following Christ no matter what the cost in the present. And so what he's doing here in this passage, I believe, is he's reminding these Christians, as well as reminding us about living in light of the judgment seat of Christ, which all of us as Christians are one day going to have to arrive at. We all have an appointment as a child of God. Now, it's not the same judgment as those who don't know Christ. That is referred to in the Bible as the great white throne judgment. But the Bible clearly teaches that one day every Christian is going to have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In fact, you'll notice here in verse 31 of Hebrew, or excuse me, at the end of verse 30 of Hebrews chapter 10, the author says, the Lord will judge his people. Not talking about unbelievers, not talking about those that don't know God. The Lord will judge his people. And the author of Hebrews is saying to his followers here in this letter, don't walk away from Jesus Christ because you and I have an appointment one day. That appointment is to stand before the Lord in judgment. Now, what is this judgment all about? We're going to go down through this passage today and find out some things. But the first thing I want to say is this. This judgment is obviously not to determine our salvation. That is settled on this side of heaven and this side of eternity. Heaven is a prepared place for prepared people. And we make our reservation or arrangements for eternity before we die. And our salvation is settled the moment we place our personal trust in faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior. So, this judgment is not to determine whether we get to heaven or not. It's not a judgment about, are we saved or are we not saved? That has to be settled on earth now. And hopefully everyone in this room has made a decision to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. Because if the Lord were to come back... Or if you were to die, there are no second chances. There are no, as we've already seen in the book of Hebrews, any do-overs. It's settled here and now. And let me say this. Jesus makes it very clear in a very sobering passage of Scripture out of the Gospel of Matthew that there will be many people at the great white throne judgment 
who thought that they were going to be in heaven, who thought that they were going to actually arrive one day at the Bema seat judgment or judgment seat of Christ. And Jesus says, many will say to me in that day, well, Lord, Lord, have we not done many wonderful works? Have we not cast out demons? Have we not done this and that? And Jesus will turn to them and say, depart from me. I never knew you. I never had a personal relationship with you. You may have known about me in your head, but you never truly accepted me in your heart. And as I've been even taught from the time I was a child in Sunday school, sometimes it's the distance between our brain and our heart can be a big distance between whether we enter into heaven or whether we don't. And as a pastor, I hope that no one that ever sits under my ministry and my teaching ends up in that category to where you assumed that you were saved because you were a good person or, you know, as many people did down through, especially in America, I was born in America. I'm a good person. I, I haven't done any of the seven deadly sins, you know, all of these things. I go to church. I read my Bible. Again, none of those gets us saved. Only personal faith in the Lord Jesus and a personal relationship saves a person. So what is this judgment then? This judgment doesn't determine salvation, but what the judgment seat of Christ does for Christians is determine what we have done with our salvation in our Christian life. Again, whether we are saved or not is determined now. But what do we do with this? As the author has said, this is such a great salvation that God has given to us. What are we doing with it? That's what we're going to be judged for. We are held responsible by God as his people for what we have done with the salvation that we've been given throughout our lives. We're going to turn to a lot of verses in the scriptures, not because I didn't want to quote them to you, but because I wanted your eyeballs to lay on these verses as well. So would you please turn, first of all, to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. Just over a couple books, Hebrews, then James, and then you'll arrive at 1 Peter, to 1 Peter 4, 17. These couple of verses we're going to look at right now just support the idea that the Bible clearly teaches that God is going to judge his people. Again, not for salvation, but for what we have done with our salvation. And notice, in fact, Peter even says in 1 Peter 4.17 this, For it is time for judgment to begin starting with the house of God. Simply a way of saying the church or the people of God. In fact, Peter's saying already that not only is God going to judge his people, but in a sense, God is already judging his people who are part of his body, the body of Christ, the church. What's he mean by that? He's speaking about the purifying of his church. He's talking about the fact that when you and I accept Jesus Christ as our savior, the rest of our lives as followers of Jesus Christ is, is being fit by God to meet him one day. 
That, that we are being, if you will, prepared to live in an eternal kingdom. And that's why God moves amongst his people and, and disciplines his people and purifies his people because he is preparing us to meet him. He is preparing us and fitting us to live eternally in his holy kingdom. And therefore, he's judging us. He's preparing us. He's fitting us. Don't think of the term judge in a very narrow sense, as many even Christians do, to just deal again with, if you will, the the banishment of unbelievers into the lake of fire. It means so much more than that. And that's what the Bible is teaching us here. This is why people have such a problem when they come to the passage in Hebrews about the Lord's going to judge his people. I didn't think I was going to be judged. I thought when I accepted Christ as my Savior, God's not going to judge me anymore. No, that's not biblical. You and I are going to be held accountable before God for what we have done with our Christian life and the salvation that we have been given. And as Peter says... That judgment is even really starting right now as God deals with us to meet him and live in his eternal kingdom. Then go back to 2 Corinthians, if you will. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. Here Paul is talking to Christians. And here's what he says. For we, speaking about even himself and other Christians, must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be paid back according to what he has done while in the body, whether good or evil. The reason why this judgment is called the Bema judgment is because Paul and others were taking their cue sort of from from the Greeks who after the Olympic Games or his Mythian Games when athletes would be crowned and given a garland or a wreath for victory they would literally have to step up on a raised platform and receive their rewards if you will for their accomplishments in, in the Games. And they took that idea of a raised platform and applying it to Christians. One day, God will call each of us before Jesus Christ. And every Christian will literally have to stand before our Lord and Savior one-on-one. And we will be called before Him. And we will be judged for what we have done with our salvation. We will have to give an account of our Christian life. And Jesus himself will render his opinion and decisions upon how we have lived our life before us. We will get rewarded for the things that last and the things that won't last will be burned up as we're going to see in just a moment. So back then to Hebrews chapter 10. Let's go back then and start down through this passage of scripture. If we know that this scripture is returning or is referring to the future judgment seat of Christ, then he begins in verse 26 with these thoughts. For if we deliberately keep on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, 
No further sacrifice for sins is left for us. Notice a couple things. First of all, in talking to the people of God, he says, I'm not talking to you who are, who are ignorant and who are maybe doing something you shouldn't be doing, but you're ignorant of that, or you're not doing something you should be, and you're doing it in ignorance. Notice here, he's saying, you are deliberately, you are willfully, after receiving knowledge, and the word knowledge here means full knowledge. In other words, he's saying, in a sense, that he, the people he's talking to, the people of God, are sinning with their eyes wide open. Either they know that God clearly wants them to do something and they're saying no to it. They're being willful. They're, they're saying, no, God, I'm not going to do this, even though I know this is what you want. Or at times we know that clearly God is telling us, don't do this. Don't get involved in this. Don't touch this. Don't become a part of this. And we're doing it anyway. It's like the little child, you know who's right next to the, and I see my grandson doing this now. It's like the little child next to the light socket. Noah, don't put your finger in the light socket. Yeah. (laughs) Knows he shouldn't, but does it anyway. That's what the author is saying. He's saying, look, I'm not talking to people who don't know what God expects that they know they should be doing something or know they shouldn't be doing something. And basically, they're just turning up their nose at God and saying, I'm going to do what I want to do. And notice then the author of Hebrews goes on to say, well, there's no more sacrifice for sins. What's he mean by that phrase? He means there's nothing more that God can do for that person, that Christian. Because everything God could have ever done for us to move us, to break us, to, to empower us, to, to save us, was done at the cross of Jesus Christ. If the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't move you, if, if it doesn't, doesn't break us, if it doesn't empower us, what more can God do besides the cross of Jesus Christ? The death, burial, and resurrection. If it doesn't change a life, what else can God do? In other words, the author is saying, God's already done the ultimate for mankind. He has given us the very Son of God. The Son of God has sacrificed Himself on that tree. There is nothing more for God to do. There's nothing else that God could say, oh, you know what? Okay, maybe that didn't move you. Maybe that didn't change your heart. Maybe that doesn't transform your life. But let me try something else beyond the cross. No, he's saying there is nothing else. If you and I, even as the people of God, can't be moved to repentance and can't be willing to change and do things God's way, After considering the cross of Jesus Christ and what Jesus did for us, then he says, there's nothing more God could ever do for you. What else could God do to move you, to change you, to transform you, to empower you? 
If you're in need of healing, the answer is the cross. If you and I are in need of being whole, the answer is the cross. If you and I need power to overcome sin and temptation, the answer is the cross. The answer is always in the cross, which is why Paul said to the Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Everything we need can be found in Jesus Christ, in his cross, and what he has done for us. And therefore, he says, when you and I, as the people of God, when we do the things that we shouldn't do, and when we're not doing the things we know we should, if Jesus can't move us, if the cross can't move us, if the gospel can't move us, then we're in a bad place. Because there's nothing else that God could bring into this world and do for us that would be more effective, more sufficient than God himself taking on human flesh, coming to earth, living amongst us as a man, and going to the cross and dying for our sins and being raised from the dead. Then he goes on to say this. But only a certain fearful expectation of judgment. Fearful means dreadful. And the idea is because I'm a, I'm a child of God, I know, I know one day I'm going to meet God. I know I'm on my way to heaven and I know I'm going to stand before God. Therefore, unlike a Christian who's living in the will of God and knowing that they're in the center of God's will, doing what God wants to do. And instead of looking at the coming of Jesus or going to heaven as a good thing, he says there are many Christians, just like in this category, who are actually not looking forward to Jesus coming, who are not looking forward to eternity at this point because they know they're not in a good place with God and they don't want to leave and stand before him under these conditions. To illustrate this, keep your finger in Hebrews 10 again and go over to the book of 1 John, chapter 2, verse 28. 1 John, chapter 2, verse 28. John here informs us that at the rapture or before the judgment seat of Christ, there will be two types of Christians. Only two. Again, not saved and unsaved. We're talking about all saved individuals here. People who are Christians. But even amongst them, John says there will be two types of Christians at the judgment seat of Christ. And that's why he writes these words in 1 John 2, 28. And now little children, again, talking to Christians, remain in him, continue, abide in him. Don't walk away from Christ. So that when he appears, we may have confidence And not shrink away from him in shame when he comes back. Two types of Christians. Those who will be confident when Jesus comes or when they appear before him. Doesn't mean sinless. Doesn't mean perfect. But it means they're confident in the way they're walking with God at this moment. And he says, oh, but there's another type of Christian. A Christian that when Jesus appears, they will shrink and be ashamed because of the way they have lived or are living their life at that moment. And the author of this book, John, one that was as close to Jesus as any on earth, is saying, remain in him, 
Continue. Abide. Don't stop following Jesus Christ. Because one day, all of us as Christians have an appointment at the judgment seat of Christ. And we want to be those Christians that are confident when we appear before Him and do not shrink back and are ashamed by the way we've lived our Christian life. This is what the writer of Hebrews is talking about here in Hebrews chapter 10. So back to verse 27. Only a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fury of fire that will consume God's enemies. Let's talk about the next thing. Fire? Fire? I thought fire in the Bible, again, speaking of judgment, always had to do with someone that didn't know God. You're telling me that in a sense, I'm going to be judged with fire as well? Yes, but in this way. Unbelievers will be judged for eternity with fire. Believers in Jesus Christ will be judged, listen, by fire. And that little word makes a big difference. You see, we're never going to be judged with fire. But our lives will be judged according to the scriptures by fire. Let me again show you some verses that back this up and illustrate this. Go over with me, please. Just a few chapters to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29. And notice later on in this book, a verse we're going to be looking at in several weeks from now, the author tells us that our God is indeed a devouring or consuming fire. In other words, he's saying, you realize because God is holy and cannot abide sin at all or anything contrary or opposed to him and his nature and character, that one day God is literally going to consume or devour anything and everything that does not line up with him. And that's true of our lives as well. That's why if you now turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, listen to what Paul tells the Corinthian Christians that awaits them in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning, I'll begin at verse 11. And here Paul is talking about the day that we will not as Christians be judged with fire, because a Christian will never be judged with fire. There is no torment for a Christian. But the Bible does teach at the judgment seat of Christ, we will be judged by fire. The consuming fire of God and His holiness will literally consume and devour everything about our life that didn't line up with Him. So notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, beginning at verse 11. No one can lay any foundation other than what is being laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each builder's work will be plainly seen for the day, the day of Jesus Christ, the day of his judgment, will make it clear because notice it will be revealed not with fire, but by fire. And the fire will notice, test what kind of work each Christian has done. 
If what someone has built survives, he will receive a reward from God. In other words, if you and I in our lives as a believer have done those things in our life that line up with the nature and character of God, when we stand before God as that consuming fire at that judgment and his fire passes through our life, those things that line up with him will literally survive that fire and we will get a reward for it. But notice in verse 14 or verse 15, if someone's work is burned up, it doesn't pass the test of God. He will suffer loss. He himself will be saved. So again, no question as to whether this person is a Christian. No question as to whether this person is getting into heaven. That's already been settled. This judgment has nothing to do with salvation. It has everything to do with what have I done with my salvation? What have I done with my Christian life? And notice what he says. That there will be people at the judgment seat of Christ who are saved and will enter into heaven, but only as through fire. In other words, pretty much their entire life, their entire life, everything that they invested in, everything that they devoted themselves to, all the time and effort they put into so many other things will literally be consumed and devoured by God. And as they enter into heaven, they have nothing or very little to show for their Christian life and for having this great salvation. This is what the author of Hebrews is teaching. This is why he's saying to his readers, guys, don't be so so short-sighted here. Don't get caught up in the moment as a Christian, no matter how difficult it is. Because one day we have an appointment at the judgment seat of Christ. And our lives are going to be tested by the fire of God. And you and I need to be mindful of that every day that we live our lives. So that we will continue to follow Jesus Christ and remain in him and abide in him and be faithful to him. And then he goes on, if you go back to verse 28 of Hebrews 10, to the next point. He says here, someone who rejected the law of Moses was put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much greater punishment do you think that person deserves who has contempt for the Son of God? It means to treat with insulting neglect and profane the blood of the covenant. It means to treat again as ordinary, common, nothing special, nothing sacred. And insults, treats disrespectfully the Spirit of God and of grace. Now what he's teaching here in these verses is this. And this would apply to the Hebrews as well as to you and I. That something else you and I have to consider is that we are held more accountable before God than even the people of the Old Testament. That's why he uses it. He says, look, you know, you know how God dealt with the people in the Old Testament. And many, again, Christians have such a warped view. They say, you know what? All I see in the Old Testament is God's judgment. Even on his people, God would just, you know, boom. I don't see it because we live in the age of grace, right? No consequences, right? We're not as accountable as the people are in the Old Testament because they were under the law and we're under grace, right? Right? 
The author of Hebrews says, you have a misunderstanding and warped view of grace. Because we live in the New Testament age, because we have advantages that the people in the Old Testament never had, and we talked about one of those last week, that we have prayer, that we can go to God anytime about anything, where in the Old Testament they couldn't do that. And you think about the other advantages that we have as Christians that the Old Testament saints didn't have. We have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Old Testament saints didn't have that. We have the church, the body of Christ. Old Testament saints didn't have that. We have the completed word of God. The Old Testament saints didn't have it. They had partial, but not complete. And so what he's saying is, guys, you you realize that before God, the principle in the Bible is the greater the light, the greater the responsibility. The more God gives to us, then the more we're accountable for, the more we are responsible for. And if any group in history is going to be held accountable more because of the more resources and more advantages and all of that that we have over everyone else in history, it'll be us. Because we've been given more. Now to show you this principle, again in other places, go over to the book of James for a moment. And this primarily is talking about people like me. Maybe not you, but I want to show you this principle from James chapter 3 verse 1. One of the things that I realize in my life, that as a Bible teacher, I'm going to be more accountable before God than you are. As a pastor, God will hold me more accountable at the judgment seat of Christ than he will you as even a family member of the Oasis. Not because I'm more important than you. We're equal. It's because of the role. It's because of the position. It's because of the responsibility I have as a teacher and as a pastor. And the Bible teaches us this. In James chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, because you know that we will be judged more strictly. God's going to hold teachers more accountable. Why? Because we've been given more light. We've been given more by the gifts that God has given us to teach His Word and have insight into things. And therefore, when we stand before Christ, I'm going to be more accountable than you. And then, if you go back to the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus talks about this principle as well, Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is talking about cities that he's ministered in and how they're going to be more accountable than even cities like Sodom and Gomorrah that we think, because of the way God judged them, that, wow, that's like, you know, that's really bad. But Jesus says, because I did my miracles in these cities and they did not repent, that at the day of judgment... God will hold them more accountable. Why? Because they've been given greater light. Look at Matthew chapter 11, beginning at verse 20. Then Jesus began to criticize openly the cities in which he had done many of his miracles because they did not repent, saying, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! If the miracles done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be thrown down to Hades. For if the miracles done... Among you had been done in Sodom, it would have continued to this day. But I tell you, it will be more t- 
bearable or tolerable for the region of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. The principle Jesus is simply saying there, greater light, greater responsibility and accountability. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. So let's wrap this up this morning. Let's go back then to verse 30 of Hebrews chapter 10. He says, then we know the one who said, vengeance is mine. The word vengeance here doesn't mean that somehow God is going to seek revenge on his own people. The word here means to be vindicated. And it's simply a principle that one day God is going to be vindicated, even in the life of his own people. Because if the Bible teaches that God is of greatest value and highest worth in the universe, and even we as his people live as if he's not that important, he's not my number one priority, he's not of greatest value or worth, what the author is simply saying is you realize one day God will be vindicated even amongst his people. That those followers of Christ who did not live their lives as if God was the most important of greatest value and worth, that one day he will be vindicated. That when we stand before him, we will realize, oh my goodness, I should have lived my life differently. And he goes on to say that God says he will repay. Again, this doesn't always mean negative. This can mean positive, as we've already talked about. It simply means that God will give in return what is fitting. Whatever my life deserves to get out of the way I've lived it, you can make sure God is just. He will give us everything that our life deserves to have based upon what we did with our salvation. As we've already seen, He won't forget a single good thing we've ever done in His name. Not a thing. He'll make sure we get everything that we deserve, but only what we deserve. Because God will also never be manipulated or bribed or anything like that. We will get exactly what our life deserves in living for Christ. Which is why then he says, the Lord will judge his people. One day you and I are going to stand before Jesus Christ and we're going to hear what he thinks about the way we have lived our life and what we've done with this great salvation. What his opinion is on our life. See, so often today, even Christians, they're so concerned about what they think or what other people think and what their opinions are, but very few of us live every day really caring about what does God think? What is his opinion about my life? Well, one day we're going to hear. We may disregard him now. We may not give it much thought as to what God thinks or what his opinion is on our life now. But one day we will hear from him about what he thinks. Which is why the author then ends this passage with, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Simply meaning... That God sometimes goes to great extremes to discipline and purify his own people. That you and I, as he started out this passage, we can willfully and deliberately 
you know, sort of say, God, I know this is what you want, but I'm going to do my own thing. And we can continue in that for a while, sometimes a long while. Or we can be involved in something that we know we shouldn't be. And God in his mercy and patience will let us go for a while. But eventually, even for the children of God, there comes a point where God says, enough is enough. I will no longer let my name be blasphemed amongst unbelievers and in the church. I will no longer be disrespected by one who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ and tells people they're a Christian and makes it very evident and yet lives in a way that misrepresents me to the world and dishonors me and disgraces me. God will let us go for a while, but eventually he will bring something into our life to bring us to our knees if we're a child of his. And that's what the author is saying. Why? Because God is preparing us to meet him. God is fitting us for eternity. And God wants us to understand, as he wanted these Hebrew Christians to understand, one day you have an appointment. And that appointment is at the judgment seat of Christ. And one day our whole life is going to be brought before a fire that tests our life. Because God is a consuming fire. And everything in our life that lines up with his character and nature will survive and will be rewarded for it. Everything else in our life that does not line up with the nature and character of God will literally be burned up and gone forever. I think that many hearts one day will break when they finally realize they squandered their lives after all the Savior did for us. I believe that many will lament about how little they have to offer Jesus in return for the supreme sacrifice at the cross and the faithfulness throughout our lives that he has been. See, the author of Hebrews is trying to get us to see today that the cost of our worldly and worthless pursuits is eternal. It's eternal. All these things that we may think are really important that doesn't doesn't involve God and our spiritual growth and our spiritual family. The author of Hebrews is trying to get his readers to see and us to see it's not going to matter. It's going to be burned up. It's going to be consumed. Don't you want to stand before Christ and have something to show for your salvation and for your life? This is the incentive that the author of Hebrews is giving his people. Yes, this passage is ignored. This passage is avoided because it's troubling. It makes us uncomfortable. And it may even clash with our previous held beliefs as Christians. But here's something I will promise you as your pastor. You come to this church, we're going to teach the whole Bible. We're not just going to teach the parts that we like, the parts that make us feel good, and all of that. If it's in here, we're going to tackle it. Because God put it here for a reason. And I believe that God wants His people 
to get this message so that we will not walk away from Jesus Christ, but we will remain faithful to Him. I'm going to ask our worship team to come. I'm going to ask the gals to get in place to dismiss us to the table. And as we are preparing to go to this table today and partake of these elements, I want us to focus on what we've talked about here today. I remember a couple weeks ago as I was preparing, I was originally only going to use this passage of Scripture today as an introduction to next week's message. And I heard God clearly tell me, no, Jeff, I want this to be the message for this Sunday. And then I'm like, but God, this message is on the judgment seat of Christ and it's communion Sunday. I... And then I heard God clearly say, yeah, what better Sunday to talk about that than that Sunday? Because again, this is a reminder that God saved us. But now that we have this salvation, what are we doing with it? What are we doing with our lives? And do we understand that this great salvation is something we're responsible for? It's not just something that many Christians feel like, well, I just, I just give my life to Christ and then go on and live my life however I want to. No, the Bible teaches something clearly different and something that every Christian should be aware of. So as you and I go up and gather these elements and come back to our seed as as we do business with God, as we let God speak to our hearts, after we're all served and after we sing this song to the Lord and we actually partake of this, let's keep that in mind. That when Jesus Christ died on that cross for us, it was such a great salvation that He wants us to get it and not leave it behind and discard it what are we doing with our Savior what are we doing with the word and with the spirit and with all the things God has given us through our salvation this is what we need to examine today and ask ourselves as we partake of the Lord's table this morning as you're dismissed you go back get your elements and come back to the See, for those of you that want to sing along with the worship team, you sing with all your heart. Maybe God just wants you to be quiet before him today. I don't know what God wants to do. Let's all just be obedient to the spirit of God as he's moving in our hearts this morning.